We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning as we continue our sermon series. I think it's appropriate this morning that we our sermon is about unity. I saw a sign yesterday that said, turn off the news and love your neighbor. Amen. I've been a person, I was talking to one of y'all this week. I can't remember which one of you it was, but I've been a person since I was a child. I get up, the first thing I did every morning was turn on the news. When I was in the second grade, I sat watch the news, I've watched it all my life. These, this past couple of weeks, I don't even turn it on because it's such a distraction. Jesus is what will unify this nation. Pray that we get to him. Amen? All right. I am a church member. I will be a unifying church member. Our goal this morning is to grow us in our individual walk with the Lord so that we become unified in the spreading of the gospel thing called unity. Think about it in this way. Tom Rainer used the analogy of team sports. What happens if a football team does not have unity? Every year, for years, I've watched this one football team come out on the field uh, for pregame. And every year, I look at them, and I look at the athletes that they have, and I, I, I say to myself, or whoever's sitting with me, or if I'm in the, in the, in the radio broadcast, We'll talk about how this team passes the eye test. They have the athletes. They're the most athletic-looking group. They're, they have size. And if you were there and you'd never seen two teams play, you'd say, hey, this team from the, the other, other team over here, they look good. They're going to win this game. And every year I watch that same team go in at halftime, and they've given up and quit. You can see it in their body language as they leave the field going in at halftime. And I know that it has to do with a team that's not in unity and doesn't have the same goal in mind. What if a team does have unity? What if a team does have that type of unity? The very first game of the season, 1967, Alabama versus Florida State. Florida State, who just had only had a football team for maybe a decade or a little bit longer, comes out, comes to Legion Field in Birmingham, Alabama, and at halftime goes in with a lead against the mighty Crimson Tide. Can you imagine what is going on in the Florida State dressing room, the whooping and hollering and carrying on? We are ahead of Alabama. But Alabama had unity. Watch this video. It just makes it personal. This just makes it personal. We're behind. They're all fired up. We got class. We're going to find it out. We got class, and I know we got it. And what we got to do? First place, our defense has got to go out there and take the ball. Our defense hasn't been taking the ball. Then when we get the ball, we got to have 11 people. 11 people that's just going to do their job, whatever it is. It's going to do their job and try to score every time you get the football. If we do that, we'll be all right. If we do that, we'll be all right. The offensive team has started. The same team started on offense and started. He said, save me quarterback. Okay, can we get together? All we need is just somebody that wants to do some leadership like that. Now we go. Come on, Ed.
far as you're ready to run. You're ready to play ball, aren't you? Amen? Amen. Two things I want to point out there that Coach Bryant said in that halftime speech. One was, if we have 11 men all doing what they're supposed to do at the same time, what can happen? And then he said this. Before he left, he said, everybody's a leader. Everybody's a leader. In church unity, it's no different. If we are all on the same page working together, using the gifts that God has given us in unity, and we're moving ahead in that direction, then we are spreading the gospel, and we are winning souls to Jesus. And everybody is a leader, but which way are we leading? Because if we're in unity and you're a part of that, then you are helping lead toward that goal. But if you are not in unity, then... You're going in a different way, and you're hurting the unity of a church. Church membership functions like a team. Tom Rainer said it this way on page 22 of the book that we're reading. When you become a Christian, God expects you to be a part of his church. But when you become a part of his church, he wants you to be a unifying presence there. Let's state that a bit more strongly. He demands that you become a unifying presence presence there so it is important to God that we are functioning of this way now Paul has written this letter to the church of Ephesians to strengthen the believers in Ephesus in their Christian faith by explaining the nature and purpose of the church the body of Christ he says this in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 Therefore I, the prisoner for the Lord, he has only been in prison in Rome for a short time here, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Look at that last sentence there. Unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Where there we allow the Holy Spirit to unify us, we have peace within our body of the church. Now, Paul has been with this church in Ephesus three years before. He's very close to them. This letter is not written the way that the letter to the Corinthians was written last week to correct them on a lot of things, but more it's the letter of encouragement. Paul describes the nature and appearance of the church, and he challenges believers to function as the living body of Christ on earth. He says, first of all, that we will be known by our love for one another. He goes back in verses 15 and 16 as he begins this uh, letter. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He says, even when I'm away from you, I hear about the love that you have for one another, and it encourages my heart. People will know us by our love. Jesus said this in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's pretty easy, isn't it? If we're expressing love and showing love and giving love away to other people, 
other people are going to know and realize that we are Jesus' disciples. And when we truly understand what God has done for all of us in Jesus, it should make us want to respond by living godly lives and showing love to other, other people in unity. He uses the phrase here, I urge you. It's the same phrase that he used in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 when he urged the Roman church to live in a way that was worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their worship was how they lived and how they honored God in that way. He uses a metaphor here. He says to walk. Um, Paul says to walk worthy of the calling. Everywhere that these people looked, there were new roads being constructed by the Romans. They were accustomed to this new way of walking and going places. He's using this metaphor to tell them, stay on the path that you are on, and that there are road signs on this path, because the Romans were the first people to begin to put up road signs to give direction. And Paul says, Use those road signs of humility, gentleness, patience, understanding, and peacefulness. Think about those words right there. Humility, gentleness, patience, understanding, and peacefulness. What a church that is when there are those things evident and in place. Here's, here's how it happens. When we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit individually, when we give control of our lives completely over to the Holy Spirit, He is the only one who can grow us in these, areas, in, in these areas. It's one of the most important roles of the Holy Spirit is to build unity among us as believers. He wants to lead us in that direction, but we have to be willing to be led and give over control to Him. People will also know if we lack love. There was a division in the early churches there because the Jewish believers, those who were Jews who had been converted first, knew the apostles' teaching and knew that Jesus had come for the Jew first and then for the Gentiles. And some of the Jewish believers looked down on the Gentile believers and felt that they were of a different class of Christian because of that uh, phrase. Today, it might be translated in a local church as, well, I've been here longer than those people, so I deserve more or I should have a bigger say. But here's what Paul says. Paul says we are all one in Christ. Everyone is one in Christ. There's no division. We are one body called to one hope and one baptism, and we should walk worthy of that now Paul begins to describe some things where uh, that might happen to tear up that unity first of all he goes into gossip and other negative talk I read a, a, a little joke I want to share with you about church gossip it says this Mildred the church gossip and self-appointed arbiter of the church's morals kept sticking her nose in the other members' private lives. Church members were unappreciative of her activities, but feared her enough to maintain their silence. She made a mistake, however, when she accused George, a new member, 
of being an alcoholic after she saw his pickup truck parked in front of the town's only bar one afternoon. She commented to George and others that everyone seeing it there would know what he was doing. George, a man of few words, stared at her for a moment and just walked away. He didn't explain, defend, or deny. He said nothing. Later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup in front of Mildred's house and left it there all night. Now, when we think about gossip, what do we think about? We think about a group of women sitting around talking about other women. I'm going to tell you, I have worked with, in an area exclusively with all men. Men are as bad or worse than women at gossip. So, men, don't you look at the women and say, he's talking to y'all right now because I'm talking to everybody. If you don't believe that men gossip, go to Jack's tomorrow morning. Here's the definition of gossip. Gossip is sharing information which damages another person's reputation with those who have no need to know. Gossip is sharing information which damages another person's reputation with those who have no need to know. Paul's going to tell us basically to keep our mouth shut. There's an issue of righteousness. In Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, Paul lists a whole, uh, a, a, a big long list of unrighteousness. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow. All those, that great big list of all these unrighteous, horrible sins, and right in the middle of it is gossip. So the bottom line is to us is that gossip is destructive in the church. Gossip hurts the, the fabric of the church. A unified church is powerful because it can only be unified through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And when we are unified, we are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I see this so many times in, in churches. I see it for the first time since I've been in the Piedmont Ministerial Association. I got uh, just so encouraged over the last couple of years with with finally the unity among all of our churches and being a part together of taking the gospel to the city. But here's what Paul is saying to the Romans. Gossip will tear apart that unity and render a church powerless. I remember when I was working in the secular world, I went to work at, at, at uh, a, a place, and the very first place, the very first day I went to work there, we had to have a meeting in my department. They got us all together because there was gossip going around among that group. And when, I, when and, and my, I remember my supervisor telling all of us in that room, one of y'all is going to get somebody killed with this gossip. In the secular world now, most places in, in whatever kind of a, 
handbook they give you when they hire you, they will tell you that gossip is not tolerated. In most successful organizations, you will see somewhere where they have it stated that gossip won't happen. It tears down the unity of the organization. In the book, we learn and we know from James 3, 6 that the tongue has the power to destroy. It says, in the tongue is a fire, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's pretty strong, that our tongue is set on fire by hell. That's very destructive. I remember one day as a boy, I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably eight, nine years old, and I had, you remember those little big boxes of matches that you used to get, and you could strike them and, uh, on the side of the box? Well, I had a whole box of those. And I don't know what time of year, I believe it was in the fall of the year, and I would strike a match, and I'd throw it up, and I'd see if I could blow it out before it hit the ground. I lived out in the country. It was boring. We didn't have cable. So I'm striking matches. I'm throwing them up. I'm blowing them out. One hit the ground, and I'm and it started a little fire. I was able to stomp it out real quick. But then there was that one that got away from me. And I'm stomping, and I'm beating and everything. And my mother comes out yelling, and everything it's just becomes this big. All of a sudden, this little bitty fire becomes this big fire. And everybody in my neighborhood has to come and fight this fire with water hoses and brooms and pine tops. And everybody's mad at me. Because I'm the idiot out throwing up matches and seeing if, you know, and they all have these talks with me about, do you need to see somebody? Is there something wrong? <laughs> but that's the way gossip is. That's the way that it, it begins. It starts small, it blows up, and it becomes destructive. To keep our words from being coming destructive, we have to be able to control what we say. James has talked about sinful anger. Now, he, he's describing sinful anger in our words. Earlier, he had you, uh, in, in, uh, he's used phrases like, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So we know that we can be angry and not sin. We can be angry and not use our words to sin. And it comes down to self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And we have to pray and ask God to give us more self-control in this area. Maybe you struggle in this area. Pray and ask God for more self-control over what you say and then give prayerful consideration to what you say. Tom Rayner gives us these uh, encouragements in the book that we're reading. He says, no, don't be a source of gospel. I'm sorry, do be a source of gospel. Don't be a source of gossip. If you have any doubt whether something is gossip or not, don't mention it. Keep your tongue under control. Mark Twain said this, don't believe anything you hear in half of what you see. Now, some people in the world we live in, some people put their whole lives on display through social media, Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever, they gossip about themselves. Haven't understood it. I put pictures of what I'm eating. Um, some people gossip about themselves. 
And then get mad when other people gossip about them. Don't be a source of gossip. Don't be the source of it. And then he gives us this. He says, gently rebuke gossipers. And here's the key word in that. Gently is the key word. Kindly say that you would rather not hear any gossip and you would hope it wouldn't continue to spread. Better than that, if somebody wants to tell you something about somebody else, why don't you ask them, let's go talk to them and see what they have to say. I bet they'll stop real quick. Don't be a source of gossip and gently rebuke gossip. And in gently rebuking gossipers, you have the power to unify the church with those simple words. Because the tongue can be a source of life. 1 Peter 3.10 says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If you desire to love life, see good days, keep your tongue from evil. Man, I want to love life and see good days. So be a unifier and not a gossiper. Think about our corporate witness as a church. This local church should be a community of love and unity that reveals Jesus Christ to the unsaved world. We should be loving and unifying with each other so that the unsaved world sees it and understands that. And then he goes into the topic of forgiveness and unity. Forgiveness is key to unity. I asked for permission to tell this story because it involves, one of a, uh, it involves a church member. But there was a point several years ago where I hurt Sheila Harper really bad. I mean, really, really, really bad. And it was my fault. And looking back on it now, it really, it, it bothered me, bothers me now to think about it. But here's what happened. Me and Sheila, Brother Philip, and Sparks sat down together in a room. And we determined that before we left that room, that this would not become a problem that would affect our church. And Sheila forgave me there that night. And these were the words that she said to me. She said, Michael, there's never a problem in the church. There, there's hardly ever a time in the, in, in the church where there's a problem that can't be fixed if we sit down and talk about it. And here's what I know from that moment on. We've done ministry together. We get on planes together and go to foreign countries to help take care of Cynthia. Um, when I am I, you know I, last several years I battled pneumonia really bad every time that I have pneumonia there's a, there's a meal coming from Sheila's house to my house when, when my air conditioning went out uh, and it was 98 degrees in my house and it's hard to sleep when you're used to sleeping in a 70 two to 74 degree house and it's 98 degrees in your house it's hard to sleep and the Harpers brought a a window unit to my house for my bedroom so that we could sleep at night after this had happened that's 
what brings about unity. Forgiveness brings about unity. If you're here this morning and you have unforgiveness in your heart toward someone else, especially someone else in the church, I'm going to tell you the most liberating thing that you can do is to forgive. Is to, is to forgive. Um, we can't minister properly with unforgiveness in our heart. And by the way, Sheila, I'm feeling a little bit tight in my chest. If, uh, if there's any, <coughs> got a little cough. <coughs> but it all begins with forgiveness. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What Jesus is saying here, this is in, in context with the Lord's prayer as he's teaching his disciples to pray. He's saying if you want to maintain intimate fellowship with God and one another, you have to forgive those who sin against you. And sometimes that is a very hard thing to do is to forgive someone who has hurt you really bad or who has hurt your children or your grandchildren or whoever, but your ability to have intimate fellowship with God and with other people hinges on your ability to forgive. Ephesians 4 and 32, Paul says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What a debt Jesus paid for us, and what a debt of forgiveness we owe other people. The best witness to the world is forgiveness. It's when we are able to forgive others. Unity will not happen if we don't forgive. Unity won't happen if we don't forgive. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, when we are saved, when we repent of our sins, and we become a child of God, when we're saved, we are able to demonstrate spiritually, morally, and ethically who we are in Christ. There's no favoritism, there's no categories, there's no race or ethnicity, there's no rich people or poor people. Christ is all and in all. In Christ we are one and we should put off all these things. Now, I can tell you on the day that I became a Christian, I didn't immediately have all this ability to do these things. It's been a process of growing in my relationship with Him, allowing the Holy Spirit to have more and more control of my life, and in the process of being able to do that, conforming to being more like Jesus. It's something that we all need to pray to be able to do. Now, we talked about this at the end of the service last week. What is the local church made up of? The people in the local church, what kind of people are they? They're imperfect. They are imperfect people led by imperfect what? Pastors. 
imperfect people led by imperfect pastors. And that's how Jesus wanted it. That's the design that he had for the church. And we will all make mistakes. We were sometimes to sin. But church unity is torn apart when we as members refuse to forgive other people. Our former pastor's wife, Tina Cooper, posted this on Facebook this morning. And I'll give her credit for her. She didn't trademark it. But she said, a church should never be us and them. It should always be us and him. Never be us and them. It should always be us and him. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key to unity in our churches. You have a worship guide there. On the back of it, there is a pledge, a second pledge. It's, it's written wrong on there, and I'll fix that next week. So let me read the second pledge of I am a church member to you. It says, I will seek to be a source of unity in my church. I know there are no perfect pastors, staff, or other church members, but neither am I. I will not be a source of gossip or dissension. One of the greatest contributions I can make is to do all I can in God's power to help keep the church in unity for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to sign that this morning and commit to being that type of church member. And the day is August the 20th, 2017. Unity in the church makes us powerful in spreading the gospel. Our objective is to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ and for us to do that as effectively as possible, then we have to be unified together. And if that means that we have to go to people and ask their forgiveness and say to them, I'm sorry, if we do that for the sake of souls, then I encourage you to think about it that way. Seek forgiveness. Give forgiveness. And I want to say this. Um, it's important to be a church member. I think that it is the, one of the most important things as a Christian that we are members of a local body of believers. But I want to encourage you, first of all, to look at your life and to say, first of all, am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Have I repented of my sins? Have I asked for forgiveness? And am I following Jesus daily? Have I committed that, first of all, in my life? Because if you're a church member and you haven't taken care of that salvation, then everything's out of whack in your life. And I want to encourage you this morning as we are about to go into a time of, of invitation to think closely about that in your own life. Do you know for certain that if you left this world this afternoon that you would be in eternity with Jesus Christ forever? 
or would you be separated from God for eternity in a place called hell? Jesus came to this earth, born of a virgin mother, lived a sinless life. Because of his sinless life, he was able to be your substitute on a cross at Calvary. They put him in a tomb for three days. At the end of those three days, he rose from the dead. Over 500 people saw him physically, and then he ascended to heaven. And he awaits you this morning. I want to encourage you this morning, if you don't know Christ in this way, then I want to, I want to invite you not to, to please don't leave here today and not know that you know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior. Next Sunday morning, we're going to baptize several people. Maybe you know that you know Christ as the Savior and you've never taken that step of believer's baptism. It was so important to Jesus that he walked 70 miles just to be baptized. And he left us instruction all throughout the New Testament that we are to bond together in local bodies for the sharing of the gospel and the edification of each other. Whatever it is that you need to take care of this morning, I encourage you to use this time wisely. Would you stand as we pray? Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Thank you for the freedom to be here this morning to express our worship and our love to you. But Father, most of all, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through these aisles. That he would speak to hearts and point them to Jesus Christ who gave his life and paid a debt that we can't pay and gave us for forgive and gave us forgiveness. Father, we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.